Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Hong Kong, a semi-democratic peninsula off the coast of communist China, home to one of the most important regions in the world. One whose ownership has shifted many times throughout its turbulent history. In the late 1800s, Hong Kong rose to international prominence when it acted as a base of operations for British colonial trade, effectively bridging the plentiful East and the emerging Western world. And while modern-day Hong Kong has certainly evolved over the past two centuries, its role in the global economy has remained largely unchanged. How can the GDP of this tiny, 1,000-square-kilometre city rival that of Denmark, South Africa and Norway? How is it possible for a territorial region whose arguable independence has been in dispute for decades to become the financial mecca of Asia? And finally... What will the world events of 2019 and 2020 mean for this economy? This episode of Economics Explained was made possible by our fans on Patreon. If you'd like to gain early access to these videos before they're uploaded on YouTube, as well as participate in exclusive live Q&A sessions, please consider supporting our channel on patreon.com slash economicsexplained. Hong Kong has done very well for itself as a global middleman, and the meteoric rise of China's neighbouring economy has only strengthened the city's already prosperous position. But of course, if you follow the news, you probably already know that Hong Kong has seen better days. Global trade tensions, prolonged protests, and good old-fashioned competition have dramatically impacted its economy in recent years. Not to mention, today's pandemic. But before we try to understand the impacts of these events and speculate about their outcomes, we must first understand what this region does. New York, London, and Hong Kong are the three largest financial centres on the planet. New York is of course home to the New York Stock Exchange as well as the NASDAQ, the two largest securities exchanges in the world. London is the go-to financial centre for Europe, but Hong Kong is slightly different as it is responsible for raising capital, primarily for Chinese corporations. As you already know from watching videos in the country, China has quickly become the second largest economy on Earth. But along with that growth has come the rise of Chinese companies, like Huawei, Alibaba, and Tencent. Like any public company, these businesses need to raise money to finance their operations for R&D, marketing, and everything else that is that companies spend money on. But because China's less than transparent financial sector is largely closed off to the rest of the world, Hong Kong plays the important role as China's portal for accessing international capital markets. And Hong Kong is a really great place to come to raise this capital. For starters, it is home to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, which publicly lists a very unique selection of corporations. Sure, there are your regular old international companies like HSBC and Tencent, but there are also companies here that you wouldn't really expect. China Construction Bank, PetroChina, China Mobile, China National Offshore Company are all state-owned mainland Chinese companies, and pretty important ones at that. 
So why do these state-owned companies, many of which are directly subsidised by the Chinese government, list on an international exchange rather than a domestic one? Well, the answer is actually quite simple. By listing on a reputable exchange, companies can not only raise cash, but also their credibility, which opens the door for raising even more money from international investors. Due to incredibly strict capital controls on the mainland, a lot of these companies find it hard to do business internationally. Having a presence in a market like Hong Kong, which is a special economic zone, means that these otherwise state-owned corporations can get the funding that they need to roll out projects using Hong Kong dollars, which are a lot easier to work with globally than Chinese RMB. Another big benefit is that it just connects these otherwise insulated institutions with the global economy. Everybody knows Goldman Sachs, Exxon and AT&T because they are companies with a global reach. They are also companies that people respect because they adhere to the standards of public stock exchanges. If you want to list your company on a public stock exchange, you are in for a lot of paperwork. Public stock exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ and yes, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange want to ensure that the equities trade that they facilitate are of high quality. To do this, they mandate that listed companies have to be of certain size, have key control measures in place, prepare necessary documentation on time, plus a whole manner of other hoops that they make these companies jump through. What this means is that if you're looking to do business with a publicly listed company, you can be pretty certain that they are reputable, at least in theory. A great demonstration of just how much faith people put into public stock exchanges is shown on Business Casual's mini-documentary about the Kuwait Stock Exchange meltdown in the 1970s. It's a fascinating topic that we couldn't have explored any better ourselves, so we'll leave a link in the video description for that. But back in Asia, as China looks to expand its influence internationally through programs like the Belt and Road Initiative, it is going to need to have its state-owned corporations work directly with more and more other companies. Having well-respected and publicly listed companies at the negotiating table can do nothing but help these efforts. Beyond these state-owned megacorporations, it must also be realised that Hong Kong is a popular hub for regular Chinese corporations like Tencent, Alibaba, Huawei and Xiaomi who are looking to move into international markets. Raising capital doesn't happen exclusively in the stock exchange though. Hong Kong is a metropolis of investment bank buildings, all stacked to the brim with people looking to write traditional loans from promising companies. As you can probably imagine, being the home of initial public offerings, capital raises and loan origination during the longest economic expansion in history has been enormously profitable for Hong Kong. Ever since it opted for tea bills over tea bags, Hong Kongers have long enjoyed the dividends of its prosperous financial sector, but this prosperity is now under threat. Hong Kong's position as a one-stop shop for all of your financial needs in Asia has made the region incredibly rich. The managing government of the region almost runs the city like some kind of corporation in its own right. Since its handover to China in 1997, the area has not been led by a president or a governor or even a mayor. Rather, Hong Kong is led by a chief executive, representing a leadership structure a lot closer to a corporation than a government. What this shows is that Hong Kong takes finance very seriously, which means any sign of this lucrative industry starting to go into decline is going to be equally as concerning. Shanghai is the first big problem that Hong Kong is starting to come up against. Shanghai is a financial capital within the mainland of China, 
which is pushing to fill the same role as Hong Kong. The Shanghai Stock Exchange is rapidly growing in size, and regular Chinese companies are increasingly choosing to be listed here rather than in Hong Kong. For starters, it is just easier. While Hong Kong is technically in the same country, they use a different currency and have different capital controls. There are additional audit requirements, and it's just a lot of extra effort that a company does not need to go through when Shanghai is right there. Beyond that, the Chinese government has massively supported these mainland exchanges in an attempt to limit the influence that Hong Kong has over the finances of China. As if things could not get worse, Chinese capital controls also dictate that companies cannot issue shares at a lower price than their assets are worth, meaning they cannot raise new funds when their stocks fall too low. Anybody paying attention recently would have realised that shares got real low earlier this year, so trading was pretty much halted in a city that relies on trading. Limiting Hong Kong's financial sector seriously limits Hong Kong, but perhaps it would have been able to work through this if it weren't for other issues starting to take hold. Protests amongst the residents of Hong Kong and police forces have been raging in the country for over a year now. What this has done though is put major pressure on other industries that could have otherwise picked up the slack of a waning financial market. The first is tourism. The city is a major destination in its own right with world-class restaurants, landmarks and nightlife. Even more important is that Hong Kong Airport is the major travel hub for the region. A huge amount of travellers pass through Hong Kong International Airport on their way into and out of Asia. The city is serviced by Cathay Pacific, which is one of the largest airliners in the world. Slowing down these direct and indirect tourist dollars has seriously hurt an already struggling economy. But tourism is actually only one consideration, the other being retail. Hong Kong is one of the largest luxury goods markets in the world. The city's affluent residents frequently spend big in a very profitable retail sector. This retail sector in turn employs hundreds of thousands of the city's workforce. The protests have frequently occupied shopping malls as bases of operations, completely shutting down some of the city's largest retail centres. This puts shop owners and retail workers out of business, causing direct structural unemployment. It has also caused some bigger, less obvious underlying issues. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hong Kong has the most expensive real estate market in the world. This city is home to over 7 million people, but it covers an area smaller than metropolitan London. What little land it does have is covered in mountains, 
with a majority of the landmass protected as public parks. The actual space left to accommodate all of these people is incredibly limited. When you combine this with the fact that Hong Kong is home to a lot of very wealthy people, you get yourself some extremely expensive real estate. The real estate market of Hong Kong is both a major concern and a saving grace to this economy. Unbelievably high prices have priced a lot of people out of being able to afford a home of their own. So they are pushed into increasingly desperate living situations, such as the infamous cage homes. This is not a great look for what is supposed to be the wealthiest city in the world, but the march towards higher real estate prices can't really stop. Investments into family homes and commercial real estate is a major market on the island, rivaling even the finance markets that have made the economy so wealthy in the first place. To maintain this steady price growth, the government has been very slow with rolling out land reclamation projects or even opening up existing land for development. By artificially controlling the supply, it has sent a message to investors that this land is a stable asset that the government will look after. But it raises the question, why on earth would the government want to do this? When you have people living in cages while simultaneously having a lot more land left to give, you have to assess the motivation. One argument is that Hong Kong does not want to encourage urban sprawl. The idea that if it did get rid of its parklands, it would very quickly become completely covered in concrete skyscrapers. This sounds reasonable, but it probably isn't the real reason. You cannot buy land in Hong Kong. Instead, you rent it from the government. At the moment, the government is really only renting out land for a period of 50 years at a time. This means that developers will rent a plot of land, build a large skyscraper filled to the brim with apartments, and then profit off the difference in the net rentals. So long as the developers can be certain that net rent will stay high, they will be sure of profits, and they will keep on paying those rents. Income tax in Hong Kong is extremely low, which means the government needs these rents in order to raise enough revenue. Very quickly you can see how this becomes a vicious cycle of dependency on ever-increasing real estate prices. Now as mentioned earlier, the rights have put a lot of downward pressure on this real estate market, specifically commercial real estate. If this continues for much longer, Hong Kong's government may be unable to fill new 50-year land rentals, adding even more uncertainty to a nation on the brink of chaos. So this all looks pretty bad. But if there is one thing really worth exploring here, it is the country's amazing economic resilience. Hong Kong rose to prominence as a safe haven for trade between East and West. It was a British fortress that asserted power over the region. Today, as we have seen, it's much the same. It is still a safe haven for trade, it still asserts huge influence over the region, and in many ways, it's still a fortress. The events of the last decade would have crippled any regular economy, especially when you consider an economy entirely located within one city. We are seeing firsthand today in the United States the impacts that civil unrest can have. When you add this fuel to the fire of a global health crisis, trade tensions, and burgeoning global competition, you would expect that this special economic region would be suffering. The reality is pretty different though. The region is still growing, and growing fast. A lot of this is of course piggybacking off the success of China, but that is not the whole story. Hong Kong is actually a really financially responsible region. Despite having really high costs of living and real estate prices, 
the region has surprisingly low consumer debt. And the same goes for businesses and even the government. What this means is that while these external shocks have been bad, they have not been nearly as bad as they would have been in a regular developed economy with crippling personal, business and government debt. You can watch our video on will this be the next Great Depression to understand why in further detail. But the takeaway here is that debt normally makes the good times great and the bad times terrible. Hong Kong has managed to have a great growth period without the need to take on lots and lots of debt. This means that during more trying times, it is not going to suffer the same way that other economies will. So now it is time to rank this economy using the tried and true Economics Explained leaderboard formed using these criteria. Size is an interesting one. Hong Kong is not a country, so the mere fact that this is being compared to a country in the first place is a really strong indication of just how massive and influential this region is. Even still, with a GDP of around $370 billion, it is nothing that remarkable on a global scale, at least not in absolute terms. It gets a 7 out of 10. GDP per capita, well this is also interesting. Hong Kong is home to some truly wealthy people, but it has extreme wealth inequality, meaning that this figure is dragged down quite a bit. What is even more important to consider is that this is a very clear indication of the problems of just looking at GDP figures. Hong Kong has a GDP per capita of 49,000 US dollars, which is still really good. But if you were to look at it alone, you wouldn't get the whole story. GDP is basically a measure of transactions. As we have seen, the residents of Hong Kong are typically a little bit more responsible with their spending. This means that on paper, their economy looks smaller than it actually is, particularly on an individual level. This GDP per capita figure puts them in line with countries like Austria, Sweden and Germany, so a 9 out of 10. But the people of Hong Kong are significantly wealthier than these regular developed countries. The average net worth of a resident of Hong Kong is 489,000 US dollars, which puts them in line with the wealthiest residents in the world. Now it is still going to get a 9 out of 10, even though it really does deserve a 10 out of 10. Take this as a practical application of the limitation of GDP figures. Stability and confidence. The city gets a 9 out of 10. It is the go-to destination for finance in Asia specifically because of its stability. It loses a point because of the current social unrest as well as the uncertainty about the future it holds with Chinese leadership, but nevertheless, this economy has soldiered on. If anything, the economy's resilience to this adversity is a clear demonstration of just how stable it really is. Growth. Well, it's got to be a 10 out of 10. Over the past two decades, the economy has tripled in size, due in part to the rise of China. There really isn't much else to argue here, so it clearly deserves this score. Finally, industry. Finance and tourism are about the best domestic industries you can cultivate in an economy. They are endlessly renewable and unbelievably profitable. Hong Kong has, or well, at least had, both of these industries. It is going to get a 9 out of 10, only losing a point because its reign of superiority might be under threat from mainland Chinese centres. Overall, this gives the economy a score of 8.8 .8 out of 10 putting it securely into first place with a giant asterisk, which is that this is not a country, it is a special economic zone. So perhaps it's unfair to rank it up against other national economies that don't have the luxury of basically being one big financial sector. Make of that what you will.
Hong Kong is home to an extraordinary economy. It is remarkably wealthy, remarkably stable, and remarkably good at being in the right place at the right time. The city is in a rough spot at the moment, caught between a range of external pressures. Being the global middleman is not an easy role to play at the best of times, but when the powers that be go into trade wars, and then the world shuts down, all while your people are marching in the street, it makes this kind of role almost impossible. Where a regular economy would have crumbled, Hong Kong has held strong. Globalization is a painful but mostly rewarding process. As our world becomes ever more reliant on global trade and global finance, we are going to need to bridge the gap between East and West. Given what are significant cultural differences represented by vibrant personalities, we are going to need one damn strong bridge. Fortunately, we have one. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed the latest video. If you did, please consider liking and subscribing. This video was requested by our patrons over on Patreon. If you want to have your say about what topic or country we explore next, please consider supporting the channel like these awesome people did. Thanks guys, bye. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.